Murder in the Rain. Summer is just around the corner, and if we're lucky, we'll be allowed to go out into the world and enjoy all that Mother Nature has to offer. From beaches to mountains, streams to caves, there is an abundance, especially in the Pacific Northwest, of nature to be had. Today, I will be telling four tales, three of which are unsolved, that involve mysterious deaths at both Crater and Blue Lake. Who doesn't love a lake in the summer? There are 1,400 lakes in Oregon alone. The deepest, one of the most popular, and Oregon's only national park is Crater Lake. Crater Lake is located in the south-central part of Oregon. Basically, if you left my area in Troutdale and drove straight south for about four hours, you'd be there. It's a fascinating place created by the volcanic eruption of Mount Mazama, and it is, in fact, at the top of a mountain. There aren't beaches or easy access points as people aren't allowed in the water. There aren't any water sources that feed into it either. It maintains its water level by evaporation, rain, and snowmelt. Surrounding the area... Hello to our loyal listeners. We are so proud and excited and honored to have been nominated by the Willamette Week as the best podcast in Portland. It would mean so much to us if you could take a moment of your time to click the show notes in the episode you're listening to right now. And there's a link right there. Click on that. You can go give us a vote. We would be so appreciative. Thank you so much for your time. Our fantastic campgrounds, waterfalls, and trails. I've been only once about four years ago, and it really is a sight to behold. My friend Matt and I actually arrived just as a storm was rolling in, and we watched the weight of the clouds fall into the crater as they made their way towards us. It was really spectacular. With crystal clear waters and ample trails, Crater Lake is a popular tourist spot for adventure seekers and families alike, although it's not without its own dark history. I'll start with the lesser known plane crashes. Offbeat Oregon History did an in-depth investigation into these stories, which was really fascinating. Crater Lake has become a bit of a mini Bermuda Triangle, if you will. Mm. I know these aren't murders, but they are creepy and mysterious nonetheless. Our favorite kinds of stories. At the end of World War II, there were rumors in the Crater Lake area that a dark blue Grumman F-6F Hellcat fighter plane had crashed there. Cut to 1970 when a young man named Dave Painbaker had a seasonal job at the park, just like Larry Payton from the Lover's Lane episode. Ever curious, Dave had heard the rumors of the plane and learned that it was pretty much accepted that the pilot had crashed and there probably wasn't much left of him as one of the machine guns from the plane was actually embedded in the cliffside. It was even told that part of a wing was visible through the underbrush. Well, what is a young man to do with a day off after hearing something like that? You go exploring in hopes to find the answers to these rumors. So off Dave went, hiking to the area of which the plane was presumed to have gone down. It was a twist of irony that Dave actually got lost on his search. Instead of hiking back or getting even more lost, he sat on a log to make a plan of action. It was then that he looked up to see an eyeless skull looking back at him from under a log. Creepy. Undoubtedly shaken from not only being disoriented, but now faced with a faceless face, he was able to gather himself and make his way back with the skull in hand. 
As quoted in Offbeat Oregon, Dave said, The chief ranger wasn't too happy with me when I talked to him in his office and pulled the skull out of my pack and put it on his desk. <laughs> I imagine not. A Whidbey Island Naval investigative team came to the park a few days later. Once the chief ranger informed the naval authorities, they were able to use dental records to ID the skull as belonging to 22-year-old New Jerseyan Ensign Frank Lupo. Back in December of 1945, seven Hellcats were flying from Redmond, Oregon to Red Bluff, California. It was when they got around Crater Lake, a cloud ceiling placed them lower and lower until they were only 500 feet above the tree line. With winter weather in full force, it was hard to make up from down. Coming out the other side, the rest of the team realized that they were down a plane. And this is hard to even fathom of all these young men making it out of the war. And mm. here they are just transfor- transporting some planes. And then it goes missing. Yeah. Just like that. The good news is that Frank's mom was still alive and she got to have answers about what happened to her son. In February 1976, another Dave, his daughter and grandchild, were dropped off at the airport by his wife, Jean. He was going to fly his Cessna with two 17-year-old pilots that were along for the ride and the flight hours from Klamath Falls to Salem. After landing in Salem and dropping off his daughter and grandchild, the three men got back in his plane to go back to Klamath Falls. Telling the Klamath Falls Herald, Jean said, I woke up at 9.30 p.m. with the sensation of a hand on my leg. I looked at the clock. I knew. I called the airport and told them the plane had gone down at 9.20 p.m. and he had died at 9.30. They confirmed they had lost the plane off the radar at 9.20 at 11,000 feet. I just got goosebumps. She knew. She could sense it. A hand on your leg? After losing contact, searchers went out to find what they assumed would be a wreckage. But for seven years, there were no answers, no plane, and no bodies. Then, in July of 1982, a hiker at the Huckleberry Compound, just outside Crater Lake Park, found a mangled plane. And inside, three skeletons. So, those are the plane wrecks. But what about the missing, abducted, or perhaps even murdered? We'll start in 1974. Charles McCuller was just 19 years old when he left Virginia for a cross-country hitchhiking tour. Shocking that that isn't where he met his demise. Certain to bring his hobby into the big leagues, he packed up his camera equipment, parked his Volkswagen, and started his journey. By 1975, Charles had made his way to the West Coast, ending up in Eugene, Oregon, a central city about two and a half hours south of Portland. He stayed there for a few weeks before throwing out his thumb again and making his way south, this time eventually arriving at Crater Lake. The plan being he would get there, take some snowy pictures, and be back to Eugene within a few days. It was when those few days had passed, and then passed again, that the friend grew concerned. He informed Charles's father, and the FBI started investigating. Charles's dad spent significant time at the lake, even going on his own search. We're joined now by Mike, a man that worked at the Crater Lake Lodge and assisted Charles's dad in the search. You know, I got a long history. I, my dad owned the lodge. He was the concessionaire. So oh. I, lived, I lived at Crater Lake for 18 summers. We lived, we lived in Beaverton in the winter, but I lived at Crater Lake in the summer. And that was number 17 of 18 summers. And the summer of 75... You know, you sound pretty young, maybe you don't know anything about this, but the park was closed for three weeks because the drinking water got contaminated 
by the sewer line. And so the park was closed. And I don't know how this guy got inside the park because it was closed. I mean, it was, he couldn't get in, but the last place his son was seen was, to the best of my knowledge, at a grocery store, convenience store, gas station type of thing down on the North Umpqua River, down along Glide or even up above that. And that was the last place anybody had seen him alive. And it was in the previous winter. From what his dad told me was that, you know, he was a kind of an outdoorsy kind of guy. He was, a, he was hitchhiking around and he felt like he was the kind of guy that if he came to the park boundary and, and it's closed in the winter coming in that direction, you can come in from the south, they keep the road, the road plowed, but from the north, which is where he was coming from, when you get to the park gate, you know, the road's not plowed and you can't get in. He was the kind of kid that would have made, manufactured himself a pair of snowshoes out of branches and hiked in. Mm. And so he was thinking that maybe he hiked in and had maybe fallen over the edge of the rim which is not a hard thing to do because snow cornices build up. There's a, several people that have died in the winter from standing on the rim up there and falling mm -hmm. off the snow and falling a thousand feet to their death. Somehow this guy talked his way, the dad talked his way into the park through the park service telling him, you know, he's looking for his missing son. And he got a hold of my dad. And again, there, we got a skeleton crew up there. You know, the place is closed. Uh, the staff of we carried there with about 120 people. We probably had 20 or 25 people there at the time. So had anyone even heard anything about Charles? Had that been on your radar whatsoever that he had potentially gone missing up there the year before? Nope. And, nope. Well, he, he, you know, he hadn't, his disappearance was not associated with Crater Lake. So we hadn't heard anything. Mm -hmm. And he was an East Coast guy, I think. So, you know, yeah, he was from Virginia. Like it wasn't like it was local news or anything. So no, we didn't hear anything about it. He gets, finds my dad up around Rim Village. I'm working on the boats, which are the other side of the lake. We, we had to go down there every day and fire up the boats and run them around, keep the batteries charged so the bilge pump would work and all that stuff. So he gets a hold of my dad and tells him the story. And um, we had had uh, some personal tragedy in our family. And like I said in that thing, I'm sure my dad looked in this guy's eyes and knew exactly what he was going through. Mm. So without going into extreme detail here, he got a hold of my mom. We had CB radios and said, call down there and tell Mike that this guy's going to be coming around and coming down the trail and kind of broke it down what we were supposed to do. And we were supposed to go look along the north, north entrance for any sign of you know a backpack or you know anything like that what really tells me that my dad was not thinking straight was that when he called my mom to tell her to call down there and tell me he called me by the wrong name oh my gosh so um so it was pretty clear where your dad's head had gone with yes. talking to this man oh yes. So he came down and he was a very nice guy. And uh, it was another guy, Greg Coles and I were down there that day and we knew he was coming and he came down, he introduced us and we piled into the boat and we spent a few hours looking. I mean, we, we buzzed over to where the North, uh, North, they call it North Junction. It's where the road comes up 
from the north entrance and first hits the rim. And it's a popular viewpoint in the summer, but in the winter, you know, it's just a spot on the rim. We patrolled through Scale Channel for a couple hours and we just, I mean, you just touch the accelerator and take off it. And we were just drifting through there. We were in real shallow water too. It's kind of interesting. We saw a bunch of golf balls. Somebody had been hitting golf balls down there. Anyway, I'd never done anything like that before. Hugged a shoreline that closely like that. And we had some beer down there and we drank beer. We were all underage. I mean, he wasn't, I was. Greg and I were 19. But uh, mm. then we spent the day looking for him. And when we were all done, uh, he thanked us profusely. He wanted to pay us. And he said, of course not. We're not accepting any money on a deal like this. And that was the last I heard of it for a long time. But then I understood that years later, and I don't know if it was two years, five years, 10 years, but somebody found that kid's tent and his remains were scattered around. They didn't think there was any foul play involved. They thought it was somehow, I don't know, he was in a tent in a, in a canyon or something, and maybe the snow had collapsed on him and suffocated him. I don't know, something like that. But I didn't, it didn't sound like there was any foul play suspected. You know, this was a shot in the dark. This, mm-hmm. had, you know, this, was, uh, this was a dad not knowing where to look and just kind of, dreaming up ideas well maybe this happened well maybe that happened you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing My, mine was a very brief uh encounter uh just by chance really mm-hmm. you couldn't help but just hurt for this guy because he had he had he's missing his son and he had no no idea where to look and it was just it was i could feel it then kind of fascinating too that he had the inclination to go to crater lake i know the a uh, friend he was staying with knew he was going to try to take pictures and things of that nature. But um, uh, interesting that dad ended up there and that is where he was, you know, that he was in a way so close uh, to finding him. Was, was, was the remains they found, were they inside the park? That's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I thought so too, but I didn't, I, I couldn't tell you any whereabouts, but I, I thought they were inside the park. So Yeah. So you know, fatherly intuition leading him to, you know, the right direction. But well, thank you again so much for sharing your story. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Nice talking to you. Eventually, searchers were called off and people went home. Then a year later, two hikers wound up in a secluded canyon. There they found a backpack with a Volkswagen key in the side pocket. A ranger horse patrol was sent to the area where they eventually found the remains of Charles McKellar. Well, what remained of his remains anyway. We'll start with the location of his remains. It was January when Charles went to Crater Lake. There was nearly eight feet of snow cover in the area. The location of his body was 12 miles from the trailhead. 12 miles on foot in almost eight feet of snow is not a distance a human can make. The remains themselves were minimal and peculiar. There were only a pair of unbuttoned pants and socks found on a log. The jeans only had the broken ends of his shin bones, while the socks had the foot bones in them. The crown of his skull was found a few feet away from the pants. So, backpack, keys, pants, socks, feet bones, and a skull crown. No other clothing, no camera equipment. There were many theories surrounding Charles' death, ranging from the reasonable to the bizarre. The clothing makes sense. When people start to become hypothermic, like a person in deep snow on an unknown trail might do, 
they removed their clothing. So, okay, he took off his shirt and boots, then froze to death. But how did the body get so far? Maybe he didn't get to the point of being hypothermic. Maybe he met his end at the hand or jaw of an animal. Bears, cougars, large predators live in those woods and could have easily attacked him and dragged him to their storage spot for a later meal. That would explain the missing body, but it had only been a year. For all of his personal effects to be gone was also strange. It's always possible that he met a more nefarious end. He was hitchhiking after all. Maybe someone eyed his fancy camera equipment, murdered him, and waited until the snow went away to take him out to the woods where he knew Mother Nature would do the rest of the work. There's also another theory, an entire world of theories that I was not aware of until doing research for this case. Stay with me because it gets a little bit off the rails from our usual stories, but with how many people on YouTube, Reddit, and other forums truly believing in this, I did want to acknowledge it. Former detective David Paulides is revered as the godfather of studying the over 1,200 missing people in national parks. He has written multiple books and created two documentaries regarding the strange disappearances and coincidences of the people that have gone missing from the parks. This isn't just a retired cop trying to solve cases, though. This is a man that studied Bigfoot before being turned on to the fact that so many people had gone missing in parks. His explanation in the documentary is vague, but others in the online circles like to imply abductions of the otherworldly kind or actual vanishings and some other pretty extreme out there theories. I watched the documentary Missing 411. I will say I went into it thinking it would be low production quality and full of conspiracies, basically a bad YouTube video, but I was pleasantly surprised. It's packed with news footage, interviews with the families, beautiful scenic shots that put you right where the incidents happen, and they really lay out the details and leave you to decide what happened to these people. Granted, they do allude to it being something bigger or more than we can comprehend, but overall, it isn't too far out there. They even touch on how disgusting social media can be in these situations, not allowing people to grieve, but instead force them to defend themselves. If you do watch it, which I think you should, it's really fascinating, be forewarned that it is all about kids and it's not really a lot of happy endings or answers to questions. It's pretty intense and a bit of a gut puncher. So, One of the cases covered in the film was that of eight-year-old Samuel Bulky. He and his father, Kenneth, were visiting Crater Lake, staying at the Diamond Lake Resort, when on Saturday, October 14, 2006, they arrived at the Cleetwood Cover Overlook and got out of the car. There are conflicting accounts between news articles and the documentary, but given that the sheriff and other searchers were interviewed and gave this account, it's the one I'll be going with. Samuel, being ever playful, ran across the two-lane street and onto a scree-covered hill. His dad called for him, but he continued to play. As a bicyclist stopped to take in the view, Samuel picked up a rock and acted like he was going to throw it at the biker. The biker shouted up for him to not mess around, and Sam put the rock down. His dad then crossed the street and started to catch up with him. At this point, I'll mention that Samuel has Asperger's, a form of autism, which as of recently, that diagnosis isn't really used, but it was in 2006. It falls on the spectrum in a place that some might refer to as higher functioning, but I won't get into why we should or shouldn't use that term right now, but it denotes that he may have struggled to understand the social cues his dad was giving. While dad may have looked angry or annoyed, it's possible Samuel couldn't pick up on that and thought he was playing as he approached him. So Samuel turned and continued to run up the hill. 
The variation on the story is that dad and son were playing on the hill when Sam saw something yellow and thought it might be gold, so he ran towards it. Sam got to the top of the hill and stepped over the other side of the ridge. Dad was close behind and caught up, or at least he thought he had. But when he crossed the ridge, there was no Samuel and no sign of him. He had simply vanished. The National Park Department, which is part of the Department of the Interior, is not required on any level to document or provide a database for persons that go missing on federal land. So that includes BLM land, uh, national parks, and other parks. With over 1,200 people missing from said lands, there are petitions out right now asking that databases be set up, not only to know that it's a real problem, but to provide information for those that would like to go hiking or camping to know that it may be dangerous on some level. But alas, a national park is like its own jurisdiction, and they can basically do whatever they want. And that's exactly what they did when the news of Samuel's disappearance came to them. On the first day Sam was missing and his father informed the park rangers, they called in all the in-house searchers, all 25 of them. Not surprisingly, in an area that large and a search party that small, nothing was found. On day two, the park reached out to the Klamath Falls Sheriff's Office, an office that is still frustrated to this day that they were not called on the first day. Two feet of new snow had fallen that night, hindering the ground search and covering up all clues that might have been left behind. Helicopters came, but only for a short while before the weather hampered the search as well. Dogs, trackers, and eventually 174 searchers from all around worked together, hoping to find the little boy. They also had to take into account that due to his autism, bright lights and big sounds could be triggering, so they adjusted some of their search tactics but they never found a single trace. A month later, his family held a memorial, accepting what the sheriff felt had happened, that he got lost, the snow came in and trapped him, and an animal got him when the weather thawed out. If you happen to know anything about Samuel's case, please call the Missing Children's Hotline at 1-800-282-7155. <laughs> Throughout Tiffany's story, you will hear the voice of Jennifer Jinx. She is Tiffany's sister and has been gracious enough to talk with us about who her sister was, what the legal process experience was like, and how this terrible loss continues to affect her and her family's life. There is a small town just outside Portland that is home to 4,000 people, a scenic park, and the murder investigations of two women, two women named Tiffany. Their cases are only related in name and location— while one case went to court to seek justice, the other remains unsolved. 20 miles east from downtown Portland, Fairview, Oregon is home to just that, fair if not wonderful views of the Columbia River. Fairview encompasses a small amount of land at just about 3.5 square miles, half a mile of which is water. But it is home to a beautiful natural area called Blue Lake Park, and Blue Lake Park was the final destination for the two women I'll be talking about today. Blue Lake Park is a 101-acre park located at the south shoreline of the Columbia River. The Bluish Lake itself takes up about 61 acres of the park. During the summer months, the park is home to all sorts of water, field, and covered area sports. From rowing, fishing, boating, and swimming, to softball and disc golf, there's always fun to be had. Blue Lake Park is also home to a wooded area, a wetland, and three ponds, so migrating birds and aquatic life are all encompassed in your visit. 
With no lifeguard on duty and limited use of life jackets, it is always sad but never surprising to hear of what feels to be the annual drowning of someone at the park. Age meaning nothing to the waters as victims have been little children to full-grown adults. When it comes to the two Tiffany's, though, drowning wasn't to blame for their deaths. There's an area of Portland known as Mall 205, not because it's located at 205th, but because of a strip mall that was built right next to the 205 freeway. It has never been seen as the most elegant of areas. What used to be a janky mall eventually became a ghost town, as they all do, before getting chains to take up spaces. Target and Home Depot now making up the foundation of the shopping area. It was at the 205 area that one of the biggest thoroughfares divides into two different sections, each going one way. Builders left the middle area to add even more businesses. In one of these middle blocks, there is a great combo of dive bar and strip club. It was at Falco's Pub on November 8, 2013, that 35-year-old Tiffany Fern Marie Jenks met Daniel Brynell, Joshua Robinette, and Michelle Warden Brosey, and her life not only changed, but ended. Tiffany had been living in Portland and was working as a hydrologist for the Bonneville Power Administration. Then, in 2010, Tiffany suffered a devastating personal loss that would change the trajectory of her life and, in the long run, affect what would become her death. Tiffany's father, whom she was very close to, had died. Tiffany struggled to cope with this crushing loss and did what so many have done before her. She turned to drugs and alcohol. Tiffany was a well-loved, outgoing, and caring person. Born in Corvallis, she had graduated from Crane High School, later earning a business degree from PSU. She was used to change as her dad was an engineer and the family would have to move often due to his job, but she learned over time that deep down she was a city girl. She grew up with four brothers and a sister. Tiffany was close with her fairly large family and were lucky enough to be joined by Jennifer Jinx, Tiffany's sister, to learn more about Tiffany's life and story. We, yeah, we grew up, I was the third child and the oldest girl and she was the fifth child out of six and the youngest girl there were four boys and then us two girls and so she was um, about five years younger than me because we were the only two girls we um we had spent we had to and got to spend a lot of time <laughs> together <laughs> So for me, you know, in that sisterly way, (laughs) exactly. And because she was so much younger than me, you know, um, especially as I got older, it, you know, became kind of like I had to bring her along with me Mm. and, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that it, it was mainly because we were the only sister. So when we moved around, we, um, we, we would get like four bedroom homes. And then my sister and I always had to share a room. Whereas my brothers, if they kind of got sick of each other or or whatever, they could switch, switch roommates. Oh, right. You guys were the team always. Exactly. We'd go on, on vacate. We went on a lot of vacations and of course we were the only two girls. So we were always the bathroom buddies. And Mm -hmm. so we had a really close bond, but there was also some, you know, like, we always have to hang out with each other because we're the only two girls. Yeah, that that hint of obligation. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Um, We traveled a lot. We had, uh, as far as a global family experience, um, it was really good, but my parents introduced us to a lot of different cultures, different parts of the States. Um, Just, 
it was very enriching childhood. And we um, talked a lot as a family about what was going on in the world. We, um, at one point we had a big map of the world on our dinner table and we would talk about different countries and um, different, you know, kids would research different countries and talk about them. So it was very enriching as far as we were encouraged to think and, and educate ourselves. And then specific to Tiffany, her story to me, I feel is kind of like a, um, an ugly duckling sort of story because mm. as a child, she, um, she had really pretty bad pigeon toes. Her feet um, stuck, went in pretty um, significantly. And, um, and she had buck teeth, her teeth stuck out pretty significantly again. Um, and she was the only other person besides my dad in our family who was left-handed, which wasn't a huge deal, you wouldn't think. But at the dinner table, when you had the six kids stick, you know, sitting around, if she was sitting next to you and you were trying to eat with your right hand and she was eating with her left hand, then, you know, she, it, it was... Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but as a family <laughs> dynamic, it's like, I'm stuck next to her. I have to fight with her elbow. And she just had these things about her that, that she felt, I think, insecure about. She was very shy. Um, she got teased. No, nobody else in the family had anything significant, like, you know, anything appearance-wise. Yeah, she had all the, these things that kind of made her an outcast over and over again. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But she also felt really bonded to my dad because he was also left-handed. Mm. And so she developed, a, um, and I don't think that's the only reason, but um, she developed a very strong bond with my dad just right from the get-go. But as we got older, she, I, I remember I went away to college. She got braces. Um, when she was younger, she had braces for her feet to help straighten them, to pull them out. And I graduated from high school and I went on to college. And one day I came home. She was, I think, a sophomore in high school. And I came home and her braces were off. Her teeth were straight. Her feet were, you know, straight. And her, she matured into her body and she was gorgeous. She was just, you know, she, I was jealous. <laughs> I was like, what happened? You're beautiful, you know? And, yeah. and, and she, she came right out of her shell and she just became really social, really athletic. She, um, she could just run and run and run and run and run. She just really excelled, especially in athletics. And she didn't, she wasn't really naturally, um, not naturally, Book learning didn't come easy to her. Mm -hmm. She really had to work hard at it, but she did put in that, you know, that effort um, to, to be able to learn what she did. So it didn't come easy to her. She had to really work at it, but she got good grades and then became the, the life of, you know, you would walk in into a room and she would be laughing and talking to everybody. And so that's, she was like an ugly duckling. Kind yeah, like of, she was making know. up for lost time. Yeah, yes. yes <laughs> I spent all this exactly. time feeling quiet and reserved and now I'm going to be out there. Mhm. Mm she had a special bond with my dad. And like I said because she was um he was very athletic. He he was always working out and exercising and so especially like I, I, when they were younger they had a special bond. And I think maybe part of that might have been because she was teased and and mm -hmm. you know that my dad kind of stepped in and just wanted to make sure her. that he knew that she was loved and, and, um, and both my parents worked full time. So there wasn't, 
you know, like a primary caregiver or anything mm, like that. Mm-hmm. But as she got older, at that point, it was more her trying to, she wanted to emulate my dad, you know, so my dad would run all, he would go on jogs, you know, all the time he would work out and he was a scientist. And so she, you know, would run and work out all the time and she wanted to be a scientist. And so as she got older, they would go on jogs together all the time, like miles and miles and miles. And then she, as she was working toward her um, business and her physics degree, they, you know, really bonded over that. She, she, you know, talked to him a lot about what she was doing. And so especially as they got, as she got older, they really had a close bond. Like I wasn't a scientist. I liked reading. So, I mean, we could talk about books, but it wasn't as, you know, we didn't have that connection there. And I, I could go jogging, but I'd rather kind of play tennis. And so, you know, again, we didn't have that. We didn't go, you know, go on miles long, you know, runs together. So I had a different kind of bond with him, but they, it it was a different, um, it was a, it was a special bond between her and my dad. We all took my dad's death hard. He was the first close family. You know, we've lost all of my grandparents, but they um, never really lived close. So this is the first person. It's a big family. loss for anyone. Like yes, that's, yes, that's... yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was, he was our, um, he was kind of, he was the head of the family, I guess. We didn't think of ourselves as having a head of the family, but he was, he was kind of our rock and our security, the person that we turned to when we, you know, had, my mom was a nurse, so more nurturing health questions, things like that we would go to for her, but he really, you know, he had a good financial head on his shoulders and he was just, we relied on him a lot. And so that, and the fact that he went downhill so fast after he was diagnosed, um, I think he was diagnosed in April and he um, died in September. Oh, that's very fast. September. So, yeah. So, and it, he, it was, it was just shocking for all of us. And it, it was very, um, he, you know, just wasted away and lost a lot of weight and it was brain cancer. So I, mm-hmm. that made it very difficult for us because he was such a highly intelligent man. I, you know, I'm not just saying that because he's my dad. He was a very intelligent man. He worked for the, you know, Los Alamos National Laboratory. He was a nuclear engineer. And, um, and so it was all for him, you know, yes, his body was, you know, his temple, he exercised and worked out a lot, but his brain was very important to him. And um, just seeing him because he had brain cancer and, um, and he started losing that ability to be able to process and think clearly and know what was, understand what was going on. And so, um, just yeah, the dramatic loss in weight and the change in his appearance and then him not being able to to think clearly and process things. And that was just really, really hard for us. And we all came together and we all, you know, tried to, you know, to help out. And, um, and Tiffany was here a lot trying to help out too. And, and we were all working too and taking times off from our jobs. And then she, I had one other brother and he and my sister were the ones who both took it the worst. And, um, she, she, I think she was just in denial. She couldn't accept it. She didn't want it to be real. None of us did really, but um, I was living here at the time. So my sister would come over and spend time from Portland and um, take time off work and come and spend time over here. But then she would go 
back and I was here, you know, the whole time. So not that I took it better or anything. I think I just saw the whole progression, saw how much suffering there was, you know, on a lot more constant basis. And so I think it was not as hard possibly on me for that reason. Um, whereas my brother, he wasn't here. He was the only one I think that wasn't here when my dad died because we knew at that point that he was, it was going to be very soon and everybody got over here, but, um, that one brother wasn't able to make it here until the next morning and my dad had passed that night. She just, she really struggled. She ended up, um, I think it was a, a year later, she ended up taking an early retirement from her job. From the hydrologist position? Mm-hmm, okay. at Bonneville. Mm-hmm. And I might not be exact on my my time frames. It's, you know, it's been a little while yeah, now. That's okay. I think it was about a year or so later. And then she just struggled, you know, she went, she went up and down and up and down. And she, she knew that she had a problem with, with alcohol and substances and she wanted to beat it. And, um, and that's what she was working on, you know, at the, at the, up until the time of her death, you know, she, and anybody that has had a loved one that struggled with these issues will know exactly what I'm talking about, that she, she wanted to be sober. She wanted to, and she wanted to help others to learn from her experience once she was able to, you know, get past that. And so she was working on writing a book um, about her experiences and, and about, you know, what she'd been through and what she, what she tried and, and, um, she was fatalistic when she was in in um in those modes where she felt like you know nothing was going to be better and and she was never going to be able to fight it and then she would she would fight it and she would rally back and she would you know she would say you know she was going to beat it now as an adult struggling with addiction issues tiffany had to get herself back on track She turned to the program run by Darren Littlejohn, a Buddhist that ran a recovery group, and she did just that. Focusing now on her health and growth, Tiffany started to plan a trip to Thailand with her sister Jenny. Then in October 2013, Jennifer attempted to call Tiffany, only to have it go uncharacteristically unanswered and unreturned. I'd called her that... So I was working as a caregiver at the time, and the the woman that I was caring for... um, had passed away on the October 6th and the next day, October 7th, I called my sister to tell her about it because it was, um, that was for the first person that I'd been close, somewhat close to, not in the same manner, but, um, Mm -hmm. that I'd been taking care of that I'd actually sat there with her while she was dying, you know, as she was dying. And, and, um, so that was hard for me. So I called my sister and she didn't answer. I left her a message and I expected a callback with it because with something like that, that I was dealing with the way that my sister is as, you know, no matter what she was going through, I expected a callback within 24 hours, but she was murdered that, you know, the early the next morning, I guess, but that night, basically. On the morning of the 8th, a passerby called 911. She had found a woman's body lying in the grass at the entrance to Blue Lake Park. Once police arrived and upon investigation, it was found that Tiffany had died from a single gunshot wound to the head. It was clearly foul play. The next day we found out about it and how we found out 
was that that worst nightmare that you know that you don't want to how you don't want to find out my um oldest brother got a phone call from the news asking yes asking if he was um the brother of tiffany jenks who had who had been found murdered and no. yes and he make he, sure that family had been notified before no uh, no and he he said i know you would think exactly in this oh day and age that, that happened but they had called and i guess they thought that the family had been notified i'm not sure um he he said i you know i don't know what you're talking about he got off the phone um i believe it was after that that he that i i'm not sure actually if he called the police after that to find out what happened or if he if i think the police showed up at his door and for some reason they had his contact information and i'm not sure how but and but he lived over in mcminnville so that might be the reason but anyway the police showed up there and they um told them they notified him what had happened after um, the news had called after the news had contacted yes yeah he did get notified and then he called my mom and then my mom called me and, and then I called the rest of the kids and I went and picked up my sister or my sister my daughter um from she was just uh starting high school her first year in high school and I went and picked her up from school and brought her out here but it's you know that's that's something you never forget you know I mean my mom calling and her her voice just so full of shock and grief and sadness and just you know she couldn't even like hardly get the words she just I remember her just kind of sobbing into the phone almost to you know Tiffany's dead Tiffany's been murdered and just shock you go into or I I went into shock and I knew that I couldn't think about it. Like a part of my brain was, okay, it was it kind of puts it in this logical, like, okay, this is what has happened and it's a story mm -hmm. and it's not really real, but you need to deal with it. But you can't think of it as being real because you have to do things right now. If you, you know, your brain logically thinks, if I think, actually think about that this is real right now, I won't be able to function. Yeah, you and have so to compartmentalize it. Yeah. And so I have to, you know, I have to call and I have to tell my brothers and I have to go pick up my daughter, which she was 30 miles away at, at a boarding school. I had to pick her up from school, the dorm. And, you know, I called the school and told them there's been a family emergency. I couldn't even, you know, like I said, I couldn't say what was going on in my head and make it real. There's been a family emergency. I have to pick my daughter up, you know, got her and I came out here and then it was just um it's hard to it's kind of even hard to put into work like how just we were all in shock everybody uh, you know immediately dropped everything they were doing and and came came out to out to my mom's on october 9th a woman named mercedes called police to say that she had heard of tiffany's death and knew that she had been at club mystic the one that shared the wall with falco's pub in the mall 205 area Police arrived at both clubs and looked over surveillance video. It was in that video, around midnight of the 8th, that Officer Johnson saw Tiffany enter Falco's, wearing the same clothes he would find her laying in a few hours later. We didn't know what had happened. We didn't know what was going on, trying to get information from the police, getting different, conflicting information, and we would have 
Um, some of her friends were contacting us, trying to give us information. And then I became, then we had the media, you know, contacting us, wanting to interview us and talk to us. And this was just all within like 24 hours. And it's mm -hmm. so overwhelming and so shocking. And you have no idea what's going on. I just remember, I remember things like, I remember I had to talk to the media, you know, the next day. And I remember just like leaning back against the, the wall and just sliding down to the ground and just staring at the wall on the other side and just talking like I, I don't even remember what I was saying or just trying to answer the questions. And we're just all so in shock and we're trying to comprehend this whole thing, trying to figure it out and trying to figure out, you know, what what happened even. She's up with her dad now, so hopefully he's comforting her. In the videos, at 1.30 a.m., Tiffany steps outside the bar to the smoking area. While there, two men and a woman approached her. The woman, Michelle Wooden Borsi, shook Tiffany's hand in what appeared to be an introduction. The three had just come from Club 205, a strip club across the street, and were continuing their strip club crawl with Mystic when they met Tiffany. Just 40 minutes later, Tiffany would be seen getting into a car with her three new acquaintances, and she would never be seen alive again. A witness who lived near Blue Lake reported that between 2.30 and 3 a.m., they had heard a single gunshot. After finding Tiffany murdered, police began their detective work. It was through the surveillance videos and driver's license records that they were able to pinpoint the three suspects, Michelle, her fiancé Joshua, and his co-worker Daniel. We, you know, we have two suspects that were last seen with her, and they asked one of the news stations had found out about it, that they were looking for them as suspects, and they asked the news station not to publish that information, and the news station agreed to do it um, if, they were getting, if they were given an exclusive interview afterwards. Mm. So, which is kind of like double-edged sword, I guess. You know, you think yeah. like, well, just do it. It's the right thing to do. These people, the police were trying to get them to come into the police station on the pretense of, we know that, you know, you were at this bar on this night and we're just interviewing people. We want to know what was going on. So they were able to get them into the police station. But had they been announced as suspects, um, it's, it's quite likely that they would have continued. They were already, you know, fleeing, but they would have likely continued to flee. So at the same time, it's nice that they did it, at least did agree to do it. So they were able, we were able to get those people in custody. And we were getting information um, from different sources, conflicting information, but we did find out, and I, I don't want to go too deeply into this because it's been, it's, that's been one of the worst parts about the whole thing, but we mm -hmm. did find out that she had gone, stopped by um, an ex-boyfriend's house that she had had um, a restraining, they had had restraining orders against each other, and we were all very suspicious of the guy we knew that there was um tiffany she just wasn't involved in very many like like violent abusive relationships that that we knew of but this um this individual we knew she had gotten and i knew i actually i personally knew i talked to my sister and i'd been to meet this guy and um and she had told me some stories about some some violence and 
Um, and I was very, you know, so I was like, why, why do you want to be, you know, with this guy? And she felt that he was helping her with her addiction. Is, is this a person that has a very intense, uh, online presence? Yes, yes, yes. I was going to ask you about that of just, this is more than any case I've looked into the amount of Facebook pages and petitions and oh, it's levels of obsession that this person has with this case yes. and going into these horrible ideas of mind control and the government and cults and brainwashing and all of these things. I and blaming, blaming the family, blaming my, especially me and my mom and, and bringing, and not letting, yeah, not letting you guys grieve. I mean, yes. do, you, do you just ignore that completely? Is there anything that can be done to Exactly. Yeah. So no, it's, it's been, it's been going on for so long. Like not only did we have to endure the, you know, all the criminal proceedings and everything that went along with that, but this has been going on since day one. And I think the reason I knew that she had contacted him was because he can he called me right after he found out it happened and left messages on my phone mm. saying that he'd, you know, he was, what, what had happened? What did we think happened? And very, to me, I felt suspicious messages. So I did mention something, something to the media that we were suspicious of an ex-boyfriend because his behavior was suspicious to and us. And you said and she had had a restraining order out on him? Yes. They, okay. Well, they, they had restraining orders against each other. Okay. Um, but we knew that there was a, there was a lot of, uh, aggression there between the two so of course that was the first place that we're like why is this guy trying to insinuate him uh, himself into our family and we already know that there's stuff then he's mentioned that she stopped by his house why would he stop by why would she stop by his house when they haven't seen each other for months and they've so and so i mentioned that to the media and they jumped right on it and got found out who it was contacted him and then he felt like we were trying to put the blame on him, mm. you know, anyway, like, I, I think that it would have happened anyway, but, um, it was, he put ads on Facebook, um, targeting Harney County saying that if people wanted to know the real truth to go to his website, where obviously you've seen these conspiracy theories, these things that he's talking about, these, um, the hateful things that he said about my family and the, the role we had to play in it. And, um, or that he felt that we had to play in it. And then I had, then we'd have, you know, people, I'd have people coming up to me in the stores who, you know, who knew me acquaintance wise asking me, is this true? Mm -hmm. Does your family have, you know, and you think like, no, people wouldn't do that. They, but they, yeah, people yeah. can look at this and see that this is outlandish. Yes. Yes. You, you would think. Yeah. But then, and, and now I think, more and more, especially because he's re he really seems to be getting out there more and more. Mm -hmm. I think. He, but at first, he did have a lot of followers. He had a lot of people jumping on on there and saying, "God, this is appalling that you know that these this justice hasn't been done, and this is all this cover up is going on, and what kind of a family would do this?" And and um, yeah, he t he's, he's reading me. his I stuff now. It looks like it's gone pretty extreme. Like pretty. It, it screams mental health things yes. all over it. But the petition that had over 800 signatures to have the mm -hmm. Senate look at the case and the radio shows, you know, on YouTube and the dark conspiracy. And it was just on and on and on yeah. to where like it, it was uh, difficult for me to find 
real information because he had so saturated anything to do with your sister in such mm -hmm. this ugly, dark way. Yes. Yes, exactly. It was the same thing over and over, demanding he wanted all this information from me and I needed to get this, these reports from the court and I needed, and I, you know, finally I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm done. It's just the same thing over and over and over. And like you said, you know, obviously this guy has mental health issues. And then once I caught, cut off contact with him and then my mom had some, he started contacting my mom oh my and gosh. she, she started, you know, responding to him and um, she was really in her intention at that point was to get him to stop focusing on this and accept the truth and just let it go. Mm -hmm. And so, cause she felt like, well, he's just, he can't accept it. He's grieving. It's not, you know, he's trying to, so she went that route with him and, and, you know, con continued a communication with him for a while. And then she also was like, okay, this is, he's not going to accept it. There's, you know, she, so she cut off the communication off with him. And at that point is when it really became an attack on my family. Mm. Um, and then, and like I said, there were, there were campaigns, there were messages. We had to block him. My mom had to get a restraining order against him. So he fled the country. Oh. Yeah, he went um, elsewhere. I think it was um, somewhere. He went. He went to the Philip Philippines a lot, so it might have been that area. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly, but it was somewhere in that general area. He was over there for for a while, and then I I just recently found out that he's back in the states. But um, I and that that's what I've kept saying. We actually went and talked to a lawyer. Um, of course, it was here locally, and, and we are in a pretty rural county. But regardless, he wouldn't even listen to us. He was like, "You have no case whatsoever. There's, you know, he has a right to his opinions. We're not going to look into this. There's no point in going after him. You're, not, you know, I wish that there was something we could do because I don't think it's we've suffered more from." <laughs> from what he, I, I don't know if we suffered more from that, but we've suffered so much, so much longer than we should have because right. it's just kept it more fresh in our minds. I was talking with, with someone, someone about a year or so ago and, um, and they were telling me about, they didn't know me, but they recognized my name and then they um, saw this story online and they were talking to me about it. They were like, oh, I saw that that story about your sister. Well, the story they were talking about was the information from this in other individual. And I, and I said, Oh yeah, he's, he's crazy. He, you know, and she said, well, he makes a lot of really um, interesting points, you know? I mean, I, I have questions too. And I was just appalled that she was saying it to my face. To your I, face. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't, I didn't know her well, so I didn't want to respond in any, like, I was like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's been hard for our family. It's a hard thing to go through. And I kind of left it at that. Not too awful long later, she had a, a very close loved one to her that was murdered. And I ran into her again and she apologized to me. Wow. That I had no idea how insensitive, regardless of my opinions, that I should never have even said anything like that to you because I just didn't know what it was like. That's a really horrible way to learn that lesson. Yeah. Yeah. We were, uh, Emily, my co-host and I were just talking, you know, there was some online stuff we were reading and just the nerve people have to comment on things that they just don't know about, whether it's to someone off something they read or commenting on something 
so flippantly. And it's like, those yes. people read that. Those people and see we that do. and hear it. We, and yes. Yeah. Even if we don't read it exactly, we hear it. We, and so, and you're fascinated at first, I guess, not fast again, that fast right. has a pause, but you Intrigued. know, it's like, what are people saying? You know, you look at the stories and you kind of are looking, part of you is looking for some comfort. So you read the news stories or you read and you're like, ah, oh, I want to, you know, you're reading through it and you want like this validation, like, oh, this is so horrible. Oh, what this family's gone through. And then you read things like, well, if she, mm -hmm. you know hadn't done this or she deserved it she shouldn't have been doing this or what was her family you know you get caught and it's like mm -hmm. oh she slept around in high school so no wonder this thing happened to her in her 40s like what exactly no, what exactly and yeah just and and thing and and that's the anonymity of the internet you know even if they have their names there they you know even if their name is attached to it they still feel like they can say those things whereas you know, well, even somebody looking me in the eye, I, I don't think that hers wasn't, you know, not ill-intentioned what she was talking about. She just had no idea. Yeah. Not realizing she was feeding you this information that was exactly spewed. Yeah. Yeah. That it was more of a conversation and instead of I'm, you know, recognizing the fact that your loved one was taken from you in a really horrible way. And it's, you know, it's not a casual thing. But mm -hmm. Joshua Robinette was interviewed first. He claimed to have been living in California for the last six months, but was coming back to Oregon to get married to Michelle, whom he had known for 20 years. He had known Daniel from working in Oakland. I don't know or care what they liked to go by, but I'm just going to call them Dan and Josh from now on. Dan inquired about buying a gun from Josh. Josh told him he had one, but had left it with Michelle when he moved. So the two men made the trip from Oakland, California to Portland to meet up with his betrothed and exchange the 357 revolver for cash. For the trio, the night of the 7th was one of strip clubs and drinking. Josh was too inebriated to remember when or how he had met Tiffany, but he did recall seeing her towards the end of the night. He recalled Tiffany being in the car, but that she was acting strange and yelling at them. The crew continued to drive around until ending up in an unknown secluded area. Josh got out of the car to pee, and his girlfriend followed. They began to have sex while listening to Dan and Tiffany argue in the car. At some point, Dan and Tiffany got out of the car and walked away. While Josh claims he heard nothing but their voices, Michelle told police that she had heard a gunshot during this time and that Josh thought that he saw a muzzle flash. Once finished with their alcohol-induced lovemaking, Josh hollered for the two to return to the car so they could leave. Except only Dan came back and got in the car. The three left the area and went back to the motel that they were staying at for the night. The next morning, they dropped Dan off at a bus stop and he made his way to Oakland. Once tracked down a week later in Oakland, Dan admitted to shooting Tiffany, but not in the way Josh and Michelle had detailed. He claims they ended up at Blue Lake because they wanted to do some target practice with his new gun. Obviously, they were unfamiliar with the area because while it may look like you are out in the wilderness, Blue Lake is surrounded with suburban neighborhoods and busy streets. Nonetheless, once there, they all four got out to do target shooting but Tiffany continued to yell at them. Perhaps she was intoxicated and angry. Perhaps she was realizing the mistake she had made in going with them and which she was starting to panic. Perhaps all along she thought she was just getting a ride somewhere and had now been kidnapped and was fighting to be allowed to leave. We will never know. But what Dan says was that while she was yelling at them, she actually started to ask to be killed, begging for them to shoot her. 
Dan, gun in hand, claims to have been egged on by Josh and Michelle as they continued to tell him to shoot her, so he did. Not only did he claim that they were witnesses, he said they actually cheered and congratulated him after doing so. Once arrested and interviewed, police were able to track down the sold gun that had the serial number illegally removed by Josh, and it was in Dan's girlfriend's possession. It matched the firearm that was used to kill Tiffany. Josh and Michelle made a plea deal, serving just about a year in prison for hindering prosecution and removing serial numbers from the gun they used to kill Tiffany. Dan was originally charged with murder, and if he had gone to trial, would have almost definitely, in my opinion, been found guilty and was going to be looking at serving 25 years. Instead, sticking with his M.O. of being a coward, he pleaded guilty to recklessly committing first-degree murder under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. We fast forward to the conviction, which Mm -hmm. 18 years, not very long. No. You, your family, what were your takes on that? At that point, I really kind of separated, I guess, I don't know if ideologically from my family, by the time we got to that point where I felt like we should take the deal and the rest of my family didn't want to. They wanted to go to trial and get life. They felt he deserved life. They wanted justice. That was justice. Not that I didn't want justice. Right. But I also worked as a um, newspaper reporter um, and the crime beat and covered the courts and, um, I know what it's like and I know what happens and I know how you can never trust a jury. And the fact that I we knew his confession was going to get thrown out so we wouldn't have that. And as I tried to explain to my family, you know, this might not be justice, but if we go to court, all he has to do is say one of the other people did it. Mm-hmm. And then all they have to do is say, one of you know there's three people there they could blame it on the other person mm-hmm. all or mention that the ex saw her that night or and, mm-hmm, and then you have anything, to drudge up anything. every detail of the her life and your family and yes everything on top of it but we were willing to go through that honestly had he wanted to go to trial and had we had the confession which you know i don't know that he would have wanted to go to trial with the confession we absolutely would have pushed for that and we would have if we had had to, you know, gone through a trial, but that's exactly what I said. There's no point because it, I said, what we, we take such a huge risk that he is going to walk free with no punishment whatsoever. And I said, if we can get him to sign 18 years without possibility of early release, we should get jump on that right now because the next thing they're going to say is 18 years with possibility mm-hmm. of early time. And then he could serve like, you know what, nine years. So however many, a lot less years than that. Yeah. And then they force your hand into the trial and mm-hmm. exactly at that point, I said, the longer he has to think about it, the more he might think, Hey, I have a better chance here just going to trial and, and walking away. I think I was really the, I just really talked to my family and I, and I think they finally, you know, realized that what they wanted, what we all wanted was we were not going to get, and this might be the best we could get. And we should just, we should take it so that we knew at least he was going to get some kind of punishment. There was going to be some kind of justice for her. The continued victimization of the family, you know, it's not just 
cut and dry of now we've got him and he's confessed and we can put him away forever. Now, yes, that's now you hard. guys have to go against each other and no, go to trial. No, it's right. like, and, 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 and that's hard too. knowing. And this happens in a lot of cases too. I found out since, you know, because like the police told us, they said he mentioned a lawyer you know, before the, before the confession at some point, um, early on or before the convention, mm -hmm. he mentioned a lawyer. They knew that once the lawyer got there, they weren't going to get any more information from him. And so there, as they explained to us, which, you know, I have no reason to disbelieve them, their logic in pushing him and trying to get that information from him before the lawyer got there, even though they knew that it probably would be, was like, you know, highly likely to be thrown out of court that in their experience, they found that what it, it was so important for the families to know what happened, to not have that question up in the air of, did he, did he not, did he, what really happened and going to trial and not knowing, you know, did, is this, you know, we really feel like this is what happened, but do we know for sure? And so, you know, the fact that they were able to, to push him and get that confession from him. So we knew that he was the person that pulled the trigger that took, you know, my sister's life. I, I, I'm, I appreciate, I'm appreciative that they did it because otherwise we might not really know. And there might, you know, we might still be just sitting here having these questions instead of at least having, you know, knowing. The fact that we lived over here in Harney County, which is pretty rural, and we on a very regular basis, I mean, monthly, if not weekly, uh, bi-weekly, we were driving all the way to Portland, which is what a good five, five and a half hour drive, something like that, um, staying in motels and going to the, going to the courthouse and talking to the DA and talking to them and the police officers, finding out what information they had, finding out what was going, where they were at in the case, you know, talking to them about, you know, that we were so upset that the two, the older couple that was with the, um, the younger man who actually pulled the trigger were so involved in it, you know, the, mm -hmm. and he, it was definitely a thrill kill. It was definitely premeditated, but they couldn't prove it. Right. And um, it was, you know, his word against theirs and, and, and the, and that all they could do was give them 18 months. I think it was, they each got 18 months. Um, I think the, the boyfriend of the woman got more because he was also um, got convicted of sexually abusing the, the woman's daughter. Mm. in addition um yeah really yeah stand-up guy yeah well all of them really yeah you know? oh yeah and um but they got nothing i mean 18 months and the woman got um released early for good behavior yeah, i was and gonna say me, like around a year or something and to me i i mean i hold all three of them accountable i know that they planned it in advance i listened to her um to her interview where she lied and lied, would never admit the truth. She'd lie and they would confront her with evidence. She would change her story, lie. They would say, no, we don't know. That didn't happen either because we have this evidence. She would lie again. And, you know, and it basically comes down to, they, they wanted to, they wanted to try out their gun and see what it was like to kill somebody. She worked in a morgue. She saw my sister. She actually said she didn't like my sister's boots. 
Um, that was one of the things that attract, you know, attracted her to my sister as, as the, a victim, you know, um, she, uh, she approached my sister. She's the one who um, befriended her. I, I don't, I find it unlikely that my sister would have gotten into that car with, um, with two men that she just met. Although, you know, you never know, but I think it made it a lot more, um, uh, made her, my sister feel a lot more safe that there was another woman, that this oh, woman is the one who, who approached my sister and, and, you know, really made her feel comfortable enough to leave with all three of them. And so, uh, so it, you don't believe the couple's version that they were off fooling around and then this guy just did Oh it. no, no. And then the fact that I mean they they named their 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 guns had names, Bonnie and Clyde. Gross. Um I don't know if you knew that. I did they, the couple had I think it was I'm not sure exactly the time frame, but it was about a year before that or so. They were both on um probation because they had robbed a liquor store together. They had not brought their guns with them, so it was theft mm. instead of burglary, I think. Um, uh, she had um, necrophilia stickers and things in her place. She worked at a morgue. Um, and then after it happened, they, um, she and her daughter, she took her daughter and they bought wigs. Um, she and the, the guy um, got rid of their cell phones and bought... Um, new cell phones, um, disposable cell phones. And they went up to Washington. They were basically on the run. They knew exactly mm -hmm. what they'd done. They, um, and they were trying to get away. And, um, I, you know, like I said, I think that's why I said, I'm glad that the news station didn't say that they were suspects because I, they wouldn't have come in. We might not have ever got them at least, uh, you know, to have, to have them taken some sort of responsibility. But I think that, I mean, that was, that just makes me sick to my stomach to know yeah. that there's people like that, that there's no accountability pretty much. I mean, honestly, really. Yeah, that no. they did the right thing because they turned in the guy. Yeah, right. Like, oh, we're the heroes because he's the one that did it. And it's like, mm, no, you're just as involved. Yeah, really just as, really just as guilty as, as the, um, that they might as well have all pulled the trigger together. Wow. I list, I spent a week going up to the courthouse every day. Once I'd gotten through her interview, I couldn't listen to anymore. You know, so she was the only one I listened to all the way through. But I know that the two men that went in, um, they told the same, they had all told the same story initially, but the other, the two men that broke quickly in fact that actually the young man he that went to the one who actually pulled the trigger that went down to california he broke really quickly and told mm -hmm. the whole story and so i believe his story you know i'd heard that he from his um a, his girlfriend down there at the time that he she'd said that he'd been suicidal and had been playing russian roulette um i think that he did a horrible thing. And, um, I think he's going to live with it for the rest of his life, but I, I feel like he has some regret and I feel like I believe his story the most. I think the older couple, especially listening to that woman's, um, story change and lie and change and lie. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe her story. I believe that, you know, that they planned it ahead of time and that they encouraged the younger man to do it. And, um, 
you know, I know that they were uh, aroused by what they did. And that's, you know, pretty sick. Mm -hmm. Daniel is serving his whopping 18 years at the Snake River Penitentiary. While during my research for this case, I came upon his write a prisoner profile. It is as classy as you would imagine, and it is nothing but infuriating to see this murderer have access to something that could put him in position to harm another person. Although I do want to believe in reform and people doing their time, they should be focused on doing the time, not lining up relationships or cons for when they are released. My two cents. So now that you are in the unexpected position that you, I'm sure, never dreamed you would be in of being a survivor, having a sister that was murdered, what do you want, you know, and you kind of touched on it a little bit with uh, how people spoke to you and stuff. What do you want people to know kind of about the process and how constant this ripple effect is? I know you told me when I reached out to you and I always feel bad reaching out for people for this exact reason of, hi, you're just going about your business on a Tuesday afternoon and here's this thing again. Um, so can you kind of talk on how it's just really never ending or how it continues to affect you or... It's not, you know, as the years go by, it, it, it does get better. You know, it's not a constant, constant thought in my head. And I, and, and the fact that, you know, um, for a long time, I couldn't look at pictures I, of her. I couldn't listen to music. She loved dancing. She loved music. I could not listen to music. I, I, I had to start listening to books on tape. Um, and that went on for at least a year after it happened um there and but as of today when people um when people bring it up it's a good 24 hours that it kind of really um i don't know sets me back but really affects me to where um i kind of I'll sort of detach a little bit. It's hard, sort of harder for me to think. I don't necessarily directly at that point think about her, what happened, but it's, I'm very distractible. So I know my brain's trying to process it. And then, um, you know, usually about 12 hours in or so, I, I'll just start thinking about what happened again. And it's, it, it, I'll, I'll cry. It brings it back and, you know, I do want to talk about, and for my whole family, it's like that. My mom's, you know, that say, I can tell with her too, you know, when I, when I bring it up to her, when I say anything like mentioning that I was going to do this interview, you know, she didn't say anything to me about it, but I can tell she was out of sorts. It just, it, it I, you know, that, like I said, it's not as bad as time wears on, but it never goes away. It doesn't, um, and that, you know, sometimes it does, it just like, will hit me. And, um, and again, recently, because it's been on my mind, because I know I was going to do this. And I've been, you know, thinking about things. And, but um, I will, it just like, I'll, all of a sudden, I'll start thinking about, um, about her, you know, whether it's good memories, or, you know, memories of, of all the, the trauma and the tragedy. And I will just blank out for, 
you know, hours where my mind's just going through and thinking of all these things. And there's, you know, all these different feelings of guilt. What could have we done differently? How could I have protected her? You know, what the, the, you know, the violence of what she went through that she was alone, you know, that, and, and, um, and then thinking of good memories and how much full, how, you know, how full of life she was, how, you know, she, she was just so like had such a vibrant personality and so like she would show up here and just um immediately like want to i'm just not a girly girl i mean i not that you know i'm not feminine but i'm not i'm just not into like doing my hair and makeup and she really was and she um wanted to you know look to the nines and she would come in and just like dress me up like a barbie doll and <laughs> you know do my hair and my makeup and i'd always think god i look so nice how do you do that you're so good at that and so i you know great good memories like that too and but all of it it just you, you know i could spend a half a day and then all of a sudden realize oh i you know i need to pull myself back to reality here and it is. And there's a lot more to, you know, the fact that we lived in, you know, if I want to say some things that I want to share, you know, um, so we traveled back and forth for a year. We, our lives were disrupted. We took time off work. We all suffered emotionally, physically. I stopped eating. Um, I ended up having some serious um, stomach issues. Um, they diagnosed me with situational anorexia because I just stopped eating and I didn't think about it. I just, food was not a priority, just trying to get through what was going on and understanding what was going on and the frustrations with the legal system. And you just don't think about it. You just don't think about it. I never, and, and I had, you know, I had a woman say to me after she died because, you know, we'd had fears. I knew that, you know, we knew that she'd, go on bouts and she'd go on binges and then like I said she would clean up and she was gonna you know make her life better and then she would go downhill again and it was you know a roller coaster and sure I had thoughts and fears that and worries that she was gonna have some kind of you know they were gonna find her you know have an overdose have alcohol poisoning something like that you know that I was it, it was you know god I hope you know she I hope she can, you know, pull herself out before something like that happens. You never, you never think that, that they're, you know, that they're going to be, to put it bluntly, you know, shot in the head and left to die in a park by three strangers that just want to see what it's like to kill somebody. You never think that. And you, and you can't, and, and, and so I actually had somebody say to me after she died, well, at least it was, at least it was your sister and not one, you know, at least it was your sister. And at least it was something that you kind of expected. And oh. it was, it was like, and I think, you know, I try to, I try to think of other people's like, I understand that, uh, you know, some people just think they're trying to be well-meaning you know, I know that she didn't say it out of, of as, as a, out of mean spiritedness. I think she was trying to be comforting, like, oh, well, you know, it wasn't your daughter, you know, at least your sister had issues with alcohol to where, you know, she could have, you know, something could have happened anyway. But it's, 
there's no at least there's no you know when something like this happens it's it's a shock and it's you know it's something that you can't wrap your brain about around you can't you can't wrap your brain around somebody else purposefully taking somebody else's life and 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 what and you it's i mean just you know thinking about it globally on a regular basis like it's hard for me to fathom that mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine somebody taking somebody else's life but it's a whole you know it 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 becomes real when it's your loved one and your brain's trying to make sense of it and you can't make sense of it there's there's nothing you can do to make sense of it there's no reason and then that person is just they're gone and there's no, you know, all that, you know, as far as that person that said, well, at least it, you know, at least it was your sister. At least it was no, because there was still hope. Yeah. You know, there was still hope that who knows what her, what future could have laid in store for her. You know, that's what they took from her was her hope to be able to fight this and to, you know, maybe beat it and maybe turn around and be able to help other people um, learn from her experiences, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, what they took away from her and what they took away from us. Finally, today, we will be talking about Tiffany Bettis, the second Tiffany found dead at Blue Lake Park. Also known as Melinda Smith, Tiffany was last seen alive at the Quality Inn in Gresham on March 2nd, 2015, She had a home in Roseburg, but primarily lived in Fairview. She had three children and a close, large family, a family that claims Tiffany never would have abandoned her children. Then, on May 20, 2019, human skeletal remains were found at Chinook Landing, located at the far northeast corner of the Blue Lake area. It was soon found to be the remains of Tiffany Bettis. And that is all there is to that story. Foul play hasn't been ruled out, and the investigation continues. I reached out to the detective working the case, but received no response. My request for documentation was denied, as all documents are still sealed, as it is an active investigation. I'm hoping that bringing her story to the forefront may jog someone's memory. Maybe seeing her picture will place her somewhere and give more clues to investigators. So if you are in the Gresham area in 2015 and you think you may know anything about Tiffany's death, please call Crime Stoppers of Oregon, who is offering a $2,500 reward for information. They can be reached at 503-823-4357. In your research with Tiffany Bettis, was there any indication of what the skeletal remains were like? Nothing. So all you know is it could it could be possible. There are a few articles that say one is remains found, then it's ID'd as her. Interesting. Then it's here's a little bit about her. That's it. Wow. So it's kind of surprising to me that more information isn't out because you would think if they could release some things that that would yeah. help people. Oh, I did. Oh, she was last seen at this place, but she was seen with this person or. Yeah this is how she died so or maybe they can't tell because it was skeletal yeah that's what i'm saying usually if it's you know a stab they could see that marks on the bones or a gunshot but maybe they just have no yeah if it's defleshed you wouldn't well and for how long she was missing it's very possible you know if she's in the water for four years right everything would be washed away what do you think happened to 
the young hiker we talked to mike what do you think happened like do you think it's as simple as a bear because uh, i kind of do yeah it definitely could be although i am very curious how far away his father was because bears aren't that fast if he fell and maybe went to a, a place where you couldn't see him and then got attacked by a bear maybe oh but if you're behind he's saying i'm i thought i would catch up to him so he's downhill from oh, his son i'm right? sorry i was thinking about the i was thinking about the other crater lake one you're talking about the little boy oh sorry yes this oh is- yeah so yeah if a bear had been there you'd think you'd see something because it's not like they just grab they're not like a hawk so where here's they just grab what i'm envisioning when you were describing it is they're going up the the peak there mm-hmm. he's behind his son there's obviously a ledge of some sort other side of it whatever he could have easily fallen and maybe gone under where you wouldn't be able to find him if he goes to get help no it didn't the other side wasn't like a cliff the other side was land it was just he got over the ridge to where he couldn't see him because he was like back to my conspiracy theorist inside me which is other dimension like where would he have gone (laughs) i you almost it's wild, but you almost have to to even, even be able to fathom. I mean, they said they even checked on some of these other cases. They checked eagles' nests because, the you know, for the really little kids yes. that they're the right size. I mean, they searched all That was all one of these. the theories in that other case I was telling you about where the family had the boy mm-hmm. and he disappeared. And then within minutes, there was a sighting of him three miles away. One of the thoughts was a large bird of prey yeah. had snatched him up to take him to his nest. So yeah. that's definitely a legitimate plausible theory. but it is, it's like you know with this kid there it's just i'm not an expert at, by any stretch but my understanding from watching a lot of i survived is that with animals they don't just Snatch grab you and go. go they make sure they you know totally take you down whether or not you're alive or not they take you down until you can't fight back and then take you to your to their den or to a storage space yeah, but there's to, always there's always an outlier there's always a Birds are different. I, I'm not an expert either, but... But I, like, well, an eight-year-old, though. That's way too yeah. big for a bird. I, I but like, like, no screaming, no yelling. I definitely no... would have to see the landscape to come up with my own theory. But Go watch this. I they show everything. I have seen so many of these weird stories of just people driving down a highway and all of a sudden they're in a prehistoric area and then they come out of it like they just went through a tunnel of time so it's (laughs) what are you this is all over the internet i'm telling you so i don't believe anything on the internet. oh my gosh no there's some documentaries too of people that just go in a time lapse that's what they they fully believe and so part of me wants to think well if there's no trace of him and his dad was right there there it's interesting because there's so many you know they cover quite a few cases on the in the film and um you know, some of the families are just, I have to accept that this is what it is. And then another dad's like, look at this coat. This coat would have been torn to shreds. Look at these shoes. They look brand new and they were out in the elements for three years. Like that is not normal, you know. So it does make you think and you're sitting there going, this is the parent of a missing kid f- believing in that. So who am I to say? Yeah, that's what no, I'm was saying. It's like I don't have the details and the education on the landscape or the timeline to even have a theory yeah i don't know how far he was away from him you know if he was so far that a fast animal could drag him off maybe and cats are fast yeah but again they like to play with their food before they take it so i really and i don't get affected by stuff you know i'm you know soulless on some levels but i really like 
I had a hard time sleeping. I was so shaky. I just could not fathom these people that go through life not knowing. You know, I was just listening to another podcast where it was a similar thing. They're like, I feel part of me feels sad that I'm so fascinated by these unsolved yeah. stories. But it is, it's like you want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. And I, I know we've talked in the past about there's no such thing as closure, but it is like closing a chapter on that part of your life when you know how it ended. Yeah, again, even if it's not closure, it's permission to grieve and move accurately. on accurately. Yeah. Like, do I grieve because they're gone? Do I grieve because they're alive but we're holding out hope like to yeah. just know that you can of all of the stories that's the one where i'm like oh man i my mind goes to weird places with it but definitely let's talk about the the other the older male the 19 year old so which you got to see the picture classic 1970s 19 year old he looks 45 <laughs> it's fantastic so he they find his pants unbuttoned mm -hmm. partial leg feet in sock nothing else um, his backpack and crown of his skull was a few feet away. So for me, I'm really leaning towards he was a victim of the elements, got lost, snow came in, animals probably took took the rest of it. Yeah, I think I, I, I definitely that. think that's the case. I I but again, I don't know all the dirty corners of the stories on the internet yeah. with people and their conspiracy theories, but that seems highly likely yeah. in that area, especially the altitude is very high there. I think it's fun, especially for people that are really into these other ideas. I think it's really fun and really easy to just at first take the bullet points, if you will, and go, he was 12 miles in. There was eight feet of snow. There's no way he could have done it. And it's like, it was also like two years later, you know, like a lot can happen. So yeah, I definitely, in order of probability, it's like animal oh, yeah. and then maybe someone else that got involved and then put his body yeah. out there but and with the missing stuff i think it is a large area it could easily have been dragged off or lost over time or somebody picked a hiker picked it up usually hikers are really good about that mm -hmm. so it would have likely been turned in but yeah yeah that's a it's a sad sad story there but i i don't think there's anything yeah no to me that gave me like oh he was murdered vibes mm-hmm and then any thoughts with Tiffany and yeah. uh, Jennifer? I have a lot of thoughts about that. I I found it very interesting what she said about, you know, in your closing, you're talking a lot about uh, what he went to prison for and how much time he got. And I found it very interesting to hear her side of it that she knew the risk of going to trial with multiple suspects and her family was opposed to what she was saying, let's go for the plea. And I think this is why law enforcement and courts always turn to the family to ask permission mm. for that. Because if the family signs off on it, why wouldn't you just get an easy closure to that case, get them in jail? So I, I liked hearing her side of that because mm -hmm. I, I imagine that would have been hard, even though they had so much evidence with multiple suspects, anything could go wrong in court. Mm -hmm. Have a great lawyer on your side and the whole case could... Well, as a layperson, you think it's black and white. It's right, right. here and you don't recognize, especially I can't imagine, it, you know, coming on the victim side. You would be, yes, gung-ho, absolutely right. throw the book at him. Uh, but it's hard to step back and recognize all the nuance and everything that goes into a trial and everything that could go wrong. So, yeah, that was really 
kind of incredible to hear that she had to stand up to her family to yeah. fight for this thing that's so horrible instead of being like, yeah, let's put everything into this because maybe he'll get life. So. And as much as I, I agree 18 years is not long enough, at least they got the 18 years, no early release, and that she got them to sign off on that and, and they could move on with their lives because they were getting dragged into court every week. Uh, but what really was really horrible to hear is the other two suspects only getting 18 months or yeah. however long. Like, you know they had more involvement. They had to have. Yeah. Ugh, that's just rotten tummy. Yeah. yeah I'm they, sure they're out now then. And, and I'm sure the two of them were like, oh, yeah, well, we'll say this. And then. Yeah, gang up on that mm-hmm. guy. Yeah, they're all gross. Yeah, it's very sad to hear someone, especially in the low point in her life at the time and how easily uh, you just fall into the wrong person Mm -hmm. in a situation and that they like probably saw her as being vulnerable. And yeah, that was that. Thank you again to Offbeat Oregon History. They had awesome information surrounding the Crater Lake cases. Check them out at offbeatoregon.com. They also have a podcast. Be sure to check out the fascinating documentary, Missing 411. It's streaming on multiple platforms. Thank you again to Mike for taking time to talk to us about his time at Crater Lake. And of course, thank you to Jennifer Jinx for sharing her and her sister's story today. It was very impactful to hear and have a better understanding of the real effect these losses have on the real people involved, that the victims are not just those who are lost. We'd like to give a big thank you to our Patreon supporters, M-City from Mountaintop, Pennsylvania, Allie from Anderson, Indiana, and Stacy from Southland, New Zealand. Thanks, guys. I told, I told Justin to make sure that in my final will and testament, Chloe is not allowed to dye her hair until she's 18. And uh, on my headstone, it shall say, she died of consumption. <laughs> He was like me. We were singers who did musicals, so we struggled a lot with some of our lines. And Double he was threat. Getting... <laughs> Created by the volcano eruption of Mount Mazama. Oh, <clears> that fucking sucks. Good take. And is it oh, created? <laughs> <laughs> Created by the volcano. Volcano. Yeah, I was kind of giving you like a. It sounded like me right now, where it's kind of like right bleh, there. Like and now it sounds like real nice. Catch your old mouth. Want to hear me chew one? Oh, that twitches in my teeth. Thirst quenching. Undoubtedly shaken from not only being disoriented, but. Undoubtedly. 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 You said, with, you said it with a B, I think. I said the B? I think you said undoubtedly. I have to kill myself. That sounds, I mean, that's like a, a huge difference. <clears throat> So you're saying just, I have to do this now? We have to all I have to like start from now. the beginning. This sounds really good, guys. What about this? Is this uh, better? That's pretty good. Yeah. Bigger, bigger. Age meaning nothing as the water's... Age meaning nothing as the water... Ugh, two, not as, dipshit. The Mall 205 blocks expand out from just being the mall. It's actually the 205... <laughs> I returned shoes there once. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. 
Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 